Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. It's Wednesday, May the 27th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. With me today from our political team, our reporter, Jennifer Bray. Hi, Jen. Hello. And Deputy Political Editor, Fia Kelly. How are you, Fia? Hi, Hugh. How's things? Grand. We're going to be joined in a little while also by our London editor, Dennis Staunton, to discuss the whole Dominic Cummings brouhaha and where where it's at now in the United Kingdom. Uh, But before we start, Vic, we had our own kind of small storm in a teacup about uh, a political figure closer to home. I have to say, you know, uh, I'm going to choose my words carefully here. There is a subset of the population of Ireland who, as soon as the sun comes out, um, strip off their shirts. This is men strip off their shirts, get a slab of cans and head to the park. And we've all seen that. It's a common phenomenon. I was always under the presumption here that there wouldn't be much overlap between those people and people who voted Fine Gael, and particularly between people who led Fine Gael or Taoiseach. But the picture in today's Irish Times, and of course it's been all over social media for the last couple of days, of the Taoiseach in the Phoenix Park near the Wellington Monument, showing his pecs, hanging out with the lads... Um, the only thing that was missing was the tats. They're really going to have to get some tats going if they're going to be doing this on a regular basis. Yeah, it was a bit of an oversight, all right, but the wicker p- picnic basket may have made, made up for it. Um, but yeah, I kind of think it's much ado about nothing myself. Like, he was in within his 5K. He's living in the Stewart's Lodge in the Phoenix Park at the moment um, for reasons which his spokesman says are to do with having secure lines when he has to participate in European Council meetings and other sensitive issues. You can imagine that's a valid reason. Uh, it kind of struck me a couple of weeks ago that he was living there when he did a Saturday video message, I think, and he was sitting at a big, sturdy oak desk, which looked like it wouldn't fit in a two-bed apartment. And I kind of thought, oh, he must be living in, in family. But he was in his 5K. He was, uh, you know, respecting the rule that you can only gather in groups of four. You can't tell if he was two metres apart from those pictures. You know, some people on social media speculated they weren't two metres apart. And he was having a can of beer, or we may he may not be have have been having a can of beer. But to be honest, I think there's a bit of a so what about that. It was one of the nicest days of the year. I myself was in a public park last week having a beer with a friend at a socially distance, uh, uh, so socially distance. So I don't see the problem in it. Did you keep your shirt on? It was night time, so yes. And I don't think exposing my jiggly bits to people in North Dublin would be particularly uh, satisfying uh, for anybody concerned. But I do think, like you know, there's a bit of a slight bit of connotation with some of the social media commentary which I think is is, is a bit disappointing as well so you know I, I think look it's a bit of a storm or teacup um, I think there's a certain uh, confusion actually because we're in phase one of this um, gradual relaxation of the rules and the current rules the, the, the stage we're at now is you are four friends are allowed to meet in, uh, in the open air and as long as they keep the two metre distance that's all completely legitimate isn't it I mean there's no ban on, on anything that, that, that was done there no, and I think it's like I don't know about everybody else, but you, you kind of what you kind of are watching yourself now. So you're kind of like you know meeting people, and you're like, you know, am I doing the right thing? And you're in the back of your head, kind of going, am I two meters apart? Am I doing? I think everybody's still feeling their way around it, and I think uh, to me, when I saw the pictures, I kind of thought, like you know, fair play to him. Like he, it's the nicest day of the year. Do we expect him to sit inside 
like at his desk all the time does he deserve a break like everybody else is he a normal person yes he is um and uh, like you know would it be the same if it was um um, a man and a female partner and uh, a, a, a mixed sex couple I don't know I'm not sure there's a bit of an, an undercurrent Do you think there was a little bit of prudishness in the whole thing as well? I think there's a bit of latent homophobia in some of the online commentary about it yeah I do and I think that's unfortunate I suppose the reality is Jen is that because we are now in this more complex phase and people do get confused you know what were the rules last week and how are they different from the rules what the rules are going to be next week and when is this rule going to change and when can you get your hair done and when can you you know go outside your 5k limit that there's bound to be confusion, but also scope for aggro. You know, people making morally disapproving noises of one sort or another because they think somebody has stepped over what are increasingly complicated lines of what's permitted and not permitted. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's to be expected. Kind of the longer you go into this lockdown, the more um, fed up, I suppose, people will become and the more aggro uh, people may become with each other. Um, I will also admit to maybe having one or two tins in the park of uh, a recent occasion. And I would actually be of the, the same uh, viewpoint as, as Fiek about uh, the Taoiseach's trip to the park. It seemed to me that a lot of the, I suppose, um, aggravation online was from people who were more exercised by the fact that Leo was topless. You know, there was all of these comments about, look at him there with his, with his top off when so many people are dying and it's just such, it's, it's real whataboutery, you know, I think nobody, well, the vast majority of right-thinking people, I don't think would begrudge him uh, meeting up with his friends when he's within the 5k limit from his home. And I was really surprised that the commentary on it, I suppose, lasted as long as it did and it, people are still talking about it. And yeah, from anyone I've spoken to, to be quite honest with you, they kind of just say, yes, yeah, so what? So what? The Taoiseach had a, met a friend in a park within 5k. And when you compare it to what's happening across the water, there is just no, there's just no comparison. And, you know, you, you can't even put them anywhere near each other. Um, uh, What's happening with Dominic Cummings, for example, and what's happening with Leo Varga. But I do think you're right. I mean, I've, just from being out and about and I was out cycling at the weekend and I've just never encountered so many angry people. People are just seething with each other the smallest infraction now in public will get you shouted at I mean someone roared at me uh, I was just for a brief moment had to cycle on a path and I won't repeat what was shouted at me but it was not pleasant so I think the kind of the longer we go into this you're going to see more of that kind of unrest and I, I disagree with you to a certain degree I, I don't think people are all that confused about what they can and can't do. I think people are really, really clued in. Anyone I've spoken to knows exactly when they can meet their four friends outdoors, when they can meet their four friends indoors. I suppose some of the confusion that remains is probably around something like weddings. Uh, there's no real clarity on what constitutes a large wedding, what constitutes a, a small wedding. Will there be weddings in August? Will there be weddings in September? Those kind of things are still unclear, but people are, are very aware, I think, of what they can and can't do. I suppose that's true. But on the other hand, Fiek, summer is coming and people will at least, at least some people will have a notion of making plans of some sort, because that's what people usually do about summer, when they might take their holidays, whether those holidays might involve them actually leaving their house or their neighbourhood uh, and what might be involved there. Uh, Michael O'Leary's been doing a media blitz on behalf of Ryanair today about getting um, the airlines back up and running again by the by the end of June, which would leave you in a situation, this was actually remarked to me um, by, by somebody recently, where you could go on a holiday to um, Greece or Spain, um, and come back and you might or might not have to quarantine at that point. But you couldn't go on holiday to 
Galway or Connemara because you can't go there till if you're in Dublin until the 20th of July. Yeah, but I think what Michael O'Leary is doing is trying to encourage people to do it. But the, the counterpoint to that is, are you going to go on holiday and come back in quarantine for two weeks after you do? Like, I think people are, I think Jen is right. I think people are watching themselves uh, regarding the rules. Like, you know, like I said, am I within my two meters? Am I doing the right thing? But I think people are well aware of when phase two, three, four, five is going to kick in. And people are planning holidays in the basis that they will be able to go within Ireland at a certain point in the summer. And I think, I, 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 I wonder if there is to be an acceleration of the phases, would that be something that people look at or the government look at to offer a boost to the tourism sector that you would bring maybe from the, the, the lifting of travel? So the next phase is going to be 20k and then it'll stay at 20k and then it'll go to within your region, will that be broadened and then bring the hotels forward a little bit? So I think people, people are, are clued in to a certain extent and... While there is a kind of impatience, you know, some people saying anecdotally, I thought it was striking that the opinion poll findings of the last few days show that people think that the country's going at the right pace. So I wonder if people are comfortable enough with it, but maybe are just chafing at the edges of it a small bit. And does the, like there is going to be a bit of a running battle over the, over the summer about, you know, people going to a beach and what constitutes too many people on a beach, what constitutes too many people on a beach at a one time. So we saw guards breaking up gatherings and beaches last week. But do you stop everybody going to a beach in a nice day as long as you're social distancing? That's not possible, probably, but there's really a balance to be struck. Meanwhile, Jen, we're starting to look back over the last two or three months, particularly with the COVID committee up and running. And it was meeting again yesterday and it was looking at what is likely when we do all these reviews to be the thorniest subject, which is the question of what happened with nursing homes and care of the elderly and why was such a disproportionate uh, amount of the fatalities in the country took place in those nursing homes. And was there a problem there, in the, particularly in the early stages where the eye was taken off the ball? Definitely. And, you know, I suppose this is where the the work of the COVID, the Dull Special COVID Committee can come into its own and, and can show kind of what the purpose of it is and and maybe get to the bottom of a few things and, and shed a bit of light. And this is one of those really, really important topics um, because we know that nursing homes have been more or less on the front line of the COVID battle. Um, and that's something that's, that's been well documented. We've seen it We've seen it in the figures, you know, the nursing homes have accounted for, I think, um, 884 or around 55 percent of the 1,615 COVID deaths in the state. So, you know, basically what happened at the committee was 90 minutes before the committee started, the Department of Health published a list of correspondence between nursing homes, um, Ireland, a representative body and between the department. Now, these these correspondences started in January and they went all the way up to recent weeks. And, you know, there were, they ran to around 400 pages, 400 and 700 pages when you t- take out duplicates. And there was a lot in it and it really did shed a bit of light. So we saw from that documentation that concerns about access to personal protective equipment and concerns about the impact on the sector were raised as early as February 28th. And in those documents, we can see that the head of Nursing Homes Ireland, Tyg Daly, was looking for guidance from the government and from health officials in relation to the risk of transmission, in relation to discharge from hospitals, because we know that's been a big issue. People who were in hospital, who were elderly, being sent back into nursing homes, despite maybe not have being tested for COVID. And we know how vulnerable the population are in the nursing homes. So 
whether people were adequately tested or not will continue to be a really, really, um, a really contentious topic. So we saw that and we can see the chain of correspondence then going all the way through February, March, April and May. And, you know, it. what struck me was that all throughout March, the Nursing Home Homes Ireland group were seeking uh, meetings with Simon Harris. They were seeking clarity on, on a whole range of different topics. And as the weeks rolled by and the, the I suppose the coronavirus pandemic took hold a bit more, you can see that the, the panic was 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 rising up a notch week by week. Now, that meeting with Simon Harris did eventually take place on March the 30th. And I think a lot of people will point to the fact that he was very busy. Um, we were in the middle of a situation and I don't think anybody would doubt that the minister probably has worked his fingers to the bone, but there are questions to be uh, to be answered uh, and, and asked about how and why this was let go so long without those questions from the Nursing Homes Ireland group uh, being answered. And all of that came about, I suppose, before the committee even started. And we saw just in, in terms of those documents, the lengths that some nursing homes had to go to. We saw some nursing homes responding in a survey saying they had to use painters overalls. They had to use um, equipment and for equipment and items from the local schools or the local vet. So, you know, the 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 measures that they had to go to and, and also some homes saying they were waiting weeks and weeks for for the results of, of tests and saying that by the time tests for COVID came back to the nursing homes, it was actually just too late. So a lot of that kind of teed up then the work of the committee. I mean, there's obviously going to be a lot to dig in there and it'll take a long while. And really, we're, we're still in this moment, really. I, mean, I think we expect it'll certainly take months and actually knowing Ireland possibly take years before we actually get a full and comprehensive report on all those issues which you mentioned. I did notice our, our health expert, Paul Cullen, in today's Irish Times, Fiat, describing the, the proceedings yesterday as a rather depressing game of pass the parcel. And there has been a, clearly a bit of finger pointing going on between the various stakeholders who Jen mentions there, you know, suggestions that the nursing homeowners are very wealthy people who could have done more themselves. So there's a bit of kind of blame game going on, isn't there? Yeah, and Fergus O'Dowd, Finnegan, for Loud, you know, made some pretty strong comments on that particular point yesterday, as you say, saying these are very wealthy people and perhaps suggesting that they were seeking to apportion blame towards the state, the HSC and the Department of Health for maybe their lack of preparation as he saw it. But one thing I did actually think was interesting in that piece by Paul this morning, and it's probably something that will emerge the longer you, you say you we consider the fallout to this was the success in prisons relative to nursing homes at containing this. And also, let's not forget the success relative to nursing homes amongst say, residential care settings for those with intellectual disability. The performance there has been far superior to what happened in nursing homes. So I wonder when this all goes into, as you say, we heard calls for an inquiry yesterday, like there will be a vast uh, kind of, you know, retrospective look at all this when we exit this moment. Now is probably not the the exact time for that, although there is an initial looking at it now with the COVID-19 committee that I wonder if, as you look and compare how prisons and other residential care settings compared to nursing homes, that could be something that will like reflect badly on the nursing home sector in particular and the preparations around nursing homes from those health actors. But as you say, at the moment, they're in this, you know, circular firing squad of blame. And that's something that I suppose routinely happens in the health sector, that you have so many actors across the sector, there's always an element of parse the parcel when something goes wrong. Yeah, I mean, Jen, finally on this, it does, it does strike me reading reading Paul's piece, which is very good. I'd recommend it to people to have a look at. I mean, the bigger picture of all of this is we've set up in recent decades a, a system largely financed by the Fair Deal scheme, by the 
occupies people's homes going to pay for institutional care in these uh, in these private care homes and it's not necessarily the best thing for the for the people themselves they might be better off being assisted in staying in their own homes for a lot longer but it's the system we set up uh, there's a lot of lowly paid people a lot of migrant workers working in it the whole thing might require a major revamp yeah and i think that is i think that's fair to say and it is something that this pandemic has highlighted something we we more or less knew before, but I suppose when you present it in the stark terms of the number of deaths, um, it really is quite a pressing issue. And we know that Hickwa have raised concerns about the fact, the way the private uh, sector is constituted in terms of nursing homes make it very difficult to have proper clinical oversight of that sector. And, you know, there was a lot of criticism yesterday um, levelled, I suppose, at private providers and the fact that People who are running them may have may be wealthy. They may have plenty of money in the bank. And how can they come into a committee and, and complain that they didn't have access to personal protective equipment? But I think that kind of misses the point a little bit because the issue was not just personal equipment and it wasn't just money. It was about guidance from the government and from the department about how you operate on a day to day basis, how the most simple things like visitor restrictions, there was confusion around that. And, you know, yes, there is certainly a debate to be had about the funding of the nursing home sector and the way in which it is currently constituted. But there's a lot more here. There's a bigger picture, too. And uh, also in, in, in Paul's piece that you mentioned, he pointed out that in the doll yesterday, Stephen Donnelly said that he'd gone through the minutes of the NEFIT, the National Public Health Emergency Team, and he saw that uh, the issue of nursing homes was not raised until their 12th meeting. So you have 11 meetings of this public health emergency team. You have international evidence showing you the, the devastating effect it has in nursing homes and it doesn't come up until the 12th meeting. Now, I will caveat that by saying that there were subgroups established, but notwithstanding that fact, that's something that really needs to be examined and, and reflected on as well. We can't let one of these podcasts go by at the moment, Fick, without asking it, how's government formation going? Uh, what what exciting news from the government formation process? Uh, you've been put into some of the stories today about that uh, progress has been made on some of the key issues, I suppose, for the Green Party in particular, um, moving faster on carbon tax, possibly replacing the property tax with a new site tax as well. Well, this was a this was part of a, a paper pr- uh, put forward by the Green Party in the talks yesterday. Was around taxation and general finance and economic issues, and they want to replace the uh, local property tax with a site value tax. They want to accelerate the rate at which carbon tax will increase, or sorry, increase carbon tax. The current target, as we know, is 80 euro per tonne by 2030. They want to go to 100 euro per tonne. But what I'm told from the talks yesterday was that, well, they were policies or proposals put, put forward that, you know, people inside the talk say it's very hard to run these things at the moment because of the coronavirus restrictions, because you can only be in a room for two hours at a time. You're in, you're gone. It's not the general free-flowing hour-longs or like multi-hour talks that you generally have where you could thrash things out. But I think one of the key elements that's emerging is this this idea, this notion of the deficit. So we, the worst case scenario we told a couple of weeks ago was that the state would have a 30 billion deficit this year. Now, that's widely assumed that that will be what the deficit is this year, if not more. We saw the Taoiseach and the Minister of Finance last week kind of putting a marker down from a Fine Gael point of view, saying we can't go on borrowing forever. And I, I think this idea of how you deal with the deficit is one of those things that's causing a bit of difficulty. So yesterday I'm told at the talks that Fianna Falls, Michael McGrath and Pascal Dunhu were pretty much at one saying, you know, we need to send a signal to the markets that we will bring down the deficit 
in some way, while we will continue borrowing and we will have some money for stimulus that we have to send the signal and that the Green Party's NASA hurricane, I think, was querying whether this meant austerity, whether this meant spending cuts. And it seems that there's a different kind of view of how to do this between some in the Greens and Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael. And I wonder if that's going to cause trouble or is there a way of fudging this that you say, you know, we will, when the time is appropriate, tackle the deficit. That's one issue. Uh, and I don't think there was any conclusion on it last night. I think they're meeting again today. It's going very slowly. So, you know, you can you notice that the goalposts are gradually being shifted. So until last week, we were told it would be end of this week. It would be the end of this week when a programme for government would be agreed. Now we're told start of next week. I would be surprised if by the start of next week, we are there with a draft programme. It's probably looking like the end of next week. It is a very slow process and... I think what happens is that when the negotiating teams meet in a, in a session, if they go through the issues, if they can't agree, it gets kicked up to the deputy leaders. If the deputy leaders can't agree, it gets kicked up to the leader. So I suspect there'll be a lot of that going on, that there, there may not be agreement on a number of sensitive issues at the negotiating session level, and it'll get kicked upstairs to deputies, if not to leaders after that. And I'm delighted to be joined now by our London editor, Dennis Staunton. Dennis, uh, how are things in London? Very warm there, I think, this week. It's very warm, and it's uh, it's been warm every day this week, and it's uh, and it's warm right now. It's about 27 degrees. I, think. I was talking earlier to Fiek about the sartorial choices of our Taoiseach when he goes to sun himself in the park. I'm particularly taken by the sartorial choices of Dominic Cummings, who keeps dominating the news schedule. He has a, he has a very particular look, an unusual one for a Conservative Party advisor, like sort of channeling his inner... Retired acid house DJ, I think, was the what I was to figure what it is. Yeah, sort of nineteen nineties drug dealer look, I think. He's quite a figure. You'd remember that better than me. <laughs> I remember nothing. Um he's he's quite a he's quite a figure, isn't he? That the performance in the in the Rose Garden was something to behold the other day. Yeah. The fact of it was the first thing that was extraordinary about it. The idea that you have an advisor. Uh, giving a press conference at all, giving it in the garden of Downing Street, government property, and that uh, you know uh, sets himself up behind this uh, trestle table and uh, and takes questions, and just that very fact said so much about uh, his central position within Boris Johnson's administration. He is uh, you know he is the intellectual spine of Boris Johnson's government. He's the person within Boris Johnson's government that knows what it's all about that knows what uh, the plan is for after Brexit. And uh, and that, I think, is uh, obviously one of the reasons why Boris Johnson is so reluctant to get rid of him. So did that performance work? No. It uh, backfired quite clearly very badly. The first performance that backfired was Boris Johnson's press conference on Sunday to defend him. And that made things worse because he appeared to be saying that uh, not only that uh, Dominic Cummings had behaved as any father would do, but that actually anybody who didn't break the rules as he did, uh, the implication was that they weren't terribly good parents. And then uh, the uh, I think that uh, Dominic Cummings' uh, own performance made things worse as well, partly because he introduced new details. He confirmed some of the details with regard to, say, having the trip from uh, Durham to Barnard Castle while he was there. But then he introduced this element that, of the reason why he was doing it, to see if his eyesight was good enough to drive all the way back to London. That seemed implausible to people. And I think there was also a question of tone. Like an awful lot of very privileged powerful people. He had the illusion that if I just speak directly to the people, 
they'll get it. They'll understand that actually everything uh, that I did was entirely justified. And it reminded me, and a lot of people, I think, of Prince Andrew's interview with Emily Maitlis. And you remember at one stage he uh, was asked about uh, giving a party, a birthday party for Jeffrey Epstein's girlfriend. And he said, no, it was a straightforward shooting weekend. <laughs> and and in the same way, when uh, when Dominic Cummings was saying, was explaining why when he was spotted in a forest near his parents' property, that actually that was part of their property. They owned the forest. And so he didn't actually leave private property and, you know, then describe himself. And so I think it just, uh, it made people feel he was out of touch. And I think it just reinforced this idea that, uh, you know, he was busy, able to interpret the rules for himself in a way that uh, that other people weren't. And, of course, so many people... Uh, in this country, as in Ireland and as elsewhere, have actually gone through an awful lot of unhappiness and misery because they chose to follow the rules. And I think another factor, which is why it's problematic for the Conservative Party, is that the people who are most likely to have experienced uh, the worst of this are often older people. They're people over 50. Because if you're over 50, uh, your parents, if they're alive, are probably pretty old. And so uh, you, you might not have been able to see them. Uh, or else you're in that category of the over 70s yourself. And all of these, of course, are people who are more likely to be Conservative supporters. And so I think one of the reasons why Conservative MPs have been feeling so upset and worried about what they've, you know, the messages they've been receiving, it's partly the volume of the messages, but it's also the kind of people who are writing to them. They're people who have never written to their MP before. And also the way they're writing to them, the messages they're sending are personal. They're describing their own personal experience, their own personal anger and their own personal feeling that they've been made fools of. So what are the factors that then uh, will keep him in place or will see him ejected? It did seem to me, I take your point about the the, the impact of, of his statement on Monday, but what he did do, I think, it, it appeared to me, uh, was he got everything out there. Uh, he got all the facts out and wh- whatever people may make of them, and they were pretty unimpressive in my view as well, you weren't going to get what you often get in an ongoing media narrative, that some other fact which had been hitherto concealed pops out and makes things worse and finally pushes somebody over the cliff. That doesn't look like the way this is going to go. It might just be more this rising temperature which you describe in the shires and in the Tory constituencies. Yeah, as far as we know. So, I mean, I think if, the you know, if for example, it emerged that quite separately from this uh, trip to Durham that he actually somehow made some other trip uh, that broke the lockdown at another time during the lockdown, then I think that's the end of the story and he just would have to go. But I think, you know, uh, if you look at his position, the other thing that's quite different about him, say, to other political advisers in the past, is he's very much not a party man. He's not a member of the Conservative Party. He never has been. He's been very rude about the Conservative Party. And as far as he's concerned, this really is about a project. It's about a big political project. He said it during his press conference in Downing Street. He said, I want to to change the country in a way that he thought was for the better. He wanted to get Brexit done and he wanted to do things for the country. So for him, this is about much more than the Conservative Party. And for Boris Johnson, in a way, this is about something which is uh, which is bigger than the Conservative Party. I think also if you look at, say, one of you know, the groups of people within the, the Conservatives that were most vocal and most angry about this thing yesterday and the day before, it's Scottish Conservatives. And of course, the key fact about them is that you've got elections in Scotland uh, for the uh, Parliament there next year, whereas uh, obviously the UK doesn't have an election until 2024. 
So they, uh, as a party, the Conservatives, just see an awful lot at stake in the short to medium term, whereas uh, the party more generally... It has a majority of 80. If, uh, you know, I think you know, Boris Johnson certainly is in a position, uh, unless the 1922 Committee of Conservative MPs actually approach him and say, you've got to get rid of this guy, which is possible, but it's certainly we haven't got to that point yet. Uh, but I think that uh, he can ride this out, even if he takes these very big hits in the opinion polls. And if he wants to keep his man in place, he can do so. The question of how this damages the party damages Boris Johnson and the government in the medium to long term is another one. With so much on their plate, you know, including both Brexit and getting through the getting through the pandemic, plus, as you say, this broader project of changing the way in which the United Kingdom is is run, which is very close to the uh, very close to the heart of of Dominic Cummings. I mean, I, I noticed, I think, in a piece which was before the Rose Garden uh, interview, you suggested that his position might be strengthened because it this has proved how absolutely essential and powerful and central he is to the whole project. But I mean, there are power struggles always within. Uh, administration, aren't there? And there were various things going on anyway behind the scenes. He's at loggerheads with the head of the civil service. There are kind of people on the up, people on the down. He has to be weakened, I would have thought, by, by, by this. Well, I don't know. I mean, I suppose he's probably personally weakened insofar as he would have been shaken by it. And obviously he knows that there's, you know, if he if he puts a foot wrong uh, from now on, then, uh, you know, he's now a political target. He's also exposed in a way that political advisors aren't normally exposed because he's now out in public. He's a public figure now in a way that he wasn't. But I do think, though, that if uh, he does survive this and if Johnson decides to keep him, then it is an expression of his centrality to the project. And also, there are always power struggles within governments and administrations, but this one is a very asymmetrical one. He uh, has won uh, every battle so far. And so, for example, uh, you know, the, the fact that government ministers, cabinet ministers, can't choose their own special advisors. Those special advisors report to Dominic Cummings. And, uh, you know, that was the reason that Sajid Javid resigned. And so Rishi Sunak, the most popular member of the government, one of the most able and the most intellectually uh, significant of them, uh, he went into that job on the basis that he couldn't choose his own people. And so, uh, you know, and if you look around the rest of the cabinet, apart from Rishi Sunak and Michael Gove, there are very few figures of real substance there. Certainly, I don't think Dominic Raab, the Foreign Secretary, is uh, Pretty Patel, the Home Secretary. You know, if you look down through the list, these are not, you know, you're not looking at, uh, you know, there is no Gordon Brown to Tony Blair. It's, uh, you know, there's no George Osborne to David Cameron. There's no Nigel Lawson. There's no Geoffrey Howe to Margaret Thatcher. You know, you don't have any of these. And, uh, and, and so it's a very, it's a highly unusual position. And then you also have the fact that Johnson's position, despite everything, remains uh, one of somebody who did actually win this election and an 80-seat majority in December. And that's crucial. Now, having said all of that, one of the problems that uh, they have is that if you say, listen to phone-ins on um, talk radio, uh, or if you hear reports from the north of England... An awful lot of people there you're hearing saying, we voted for Boris in December. We'll never go near him again. His name is mud up here. And so uh, there's a danger. And you, and again, just uh, talking to some Conservative MPs from those seats, they, uh, you know, many of whom are arch-Brexiteers and certainly who would never publicly 
condemn uh, Dominic Cummings. They nonetheless have had to say to their constituents, we understand what you're saying. I think on balance, it's best that he, uh, he remains, but I can understand your anger. So it is, you know, it is a politically tricky thing for them. And it's certainly, a, you know, and, and of course, what they will worry about above all, is that this is a turning point moment, that this is a moment when the people look at this government and decide that we now know what you are and you're not what we thought you were. A moment like Black Wednesday, uh, you know, 1992, John Major wins the election in April. You have Black Wednesday when Britain has to leave the European uh, uh, monetary uh, arrangements uh, in uh, September with uh, catastrophic consequences initially. Actually, it turned out economically to be pretty good, but catastrophic for the government, which was never ahead in the polls again. The poll tax for Mrs Thatcher. You've had moments like this where the, gov- where the people make up their minds about a government. And the and the, and of course the thing was that even before this happened, the people were looking at the government's performance on the coronavirus, and the government's approval rating was dropping uh, from its high point at the beginning of the crisis, and when Boris Johnson was in hospital, because the fact is they haven't handled it very well, and so they have appeared to be incompetent. This adds an extra element of hypocrisy into this incompetence, and it also undermines their authority because they've also in many ways become a joke. I was queuing at the supermarket yesterday and this man an old gent was shouting across for a friend of his across the road let's go for a drive up to Durham I'll see you in the high street for a pint and so people are just like this is normal uh you know banter they have become a joke when it comes to telling people what to do the front page of the daily star today is don't drive if you're blind uh they uh, you know, uh experts tell doctors tell elites and a cut out mask of Dominic Cummings' face to, uh, you know, to uh, wear if you want to do just whatever you want to do. So that's part of it, that, you know, you have the outrage, you've got the anger, and then you also have the ridicule and the undermining of authority. Those are very bad things for a government. Uh, Fia, what do you make of all that? I think what Dennis said there at the end is the most interesting point, that whether this is just a bump in the road or whether it is an actual crystallising moment where people who lent their votes to Boris Johnson last December actually look and say, we don't like the look of these things. And when you ally with that, with a new leader of the opposition who has proven so far that he is competent, that he can hold the government to account. I saw some criticism from people on the right in the UK saying, yes, he's a good leader of the opposition. He can nitpick at leaders' questions, but where's the vision? Maybe that will come. The first task is to convince people that you, if you're Keir Starmer, that you can, you can hold the government to account that you can present yourself as a prime minister in waiting. So I think that's the interesting thing. And one thing I just wonder... If they've shifted so much damage through this crisis uh, with this particular Cummings point being a moment of ridicule, as Dennis said, do they then try and engineer a massive Brexit row later in the summer or towards the end of the year to re-galvanise that red wall base around the Conservative Party? And what does that mean for politics here and politics in the EU? Is that a way of bringing people back to their message? And how does that play into the new Labour leadership? Like, I think Keir Starmer was quick out of the blocks. Dennis, maybe you correct me on this, saying that the transition period shouldn't be extended, that it should end. That's it. We're out. And he's almost putting the onus on the Tories to say, now you go and show us how you do it. So I think just wonder if Brexit is the, the, the kind of the rope that brings those wayward Tory voters back to Boris Johnson later this year. But the coming strategy is double down, isn't it, Dennis? 
Yes, it is. And I think that they'll certainly try to do that. And, uh, you know, and Fiuk is right that uh, Kirsten, what he's basically said is, look, you know, uh, the timetable they've chosen looks pretty tight to me. I've always said it, but the fact is they've chosen it. So we're going to hold them to that. They've just got to do it. The problem, though, I think they have, I and mean, certainly that's the strategy and their general, uh, you know, the way of operating is polarisation and uh, division, and that uh, if you can polarise, then you gen up your own crowd. The trouble is that between now and the end of the year, you're going to have the real economic impact of the coronavirus, so that actually this lockdown has frozen the impact of everything. And But when you get to, say, September, then we'll know which you know, everything will be allowed to be back up and running. We'll know what isn't back up and running. We'll know whose job really isn't there. We'll know when Rishi Sunak's furlough money has run out and they have to go on welfare instead. And that economic impact, of course, is going to affect much more people than the health impact has. And so it may be hard for them to change the subject to Brexit. And particularly if Keir Starmer is sitting back and waiting. I was talking to one person very close to the government the other day who was saying that what, what they are impressed by with Starmer is his lack of ego. The fact that he clearly understands that uh, oppositions don't win elections, governments lose them. And that he knows that he really, it's a question of not getting in their way, of standing back, of looking plausible. As this person said, you know, the fact is John Smith would have won the general election in 1997. He mightn't have got the landslide that, um, uh, you know, uh, that Tony Blair did, but he still would have won it probably, just because they looked across, they didn't like the government, they looked across the aisle and they thought, yeah, he looks like a prime minister. It was interesting, Dennis, I thought actually, I saw people commenting on the way the Labour Party played this particular crisis. They weren't out of the traps the minute this mirror, or the story appeared in the mirror in the garden and said, he must resign immediately. There was this kind of slow, we need more answers. He was almost like letting them, give, giving Cummings the rope himself to, you know, do that uh, press conference at the garden to make more of a hole for himself. Rather, what might have been the reflex, reflex Corbyn action would be resign and then the Tory party rallies around their person. Yeah. Finally, Jen, just to bring you in there, you've been sitting very, very quietly and, and patiently there. Maybe it is the case that to be a leader of the opposition these days is not perhaps to do a vision thing at all, particularly, you know, in, in a lot of countries we're familiar with, you know, there are there are populist politicians who've presented certain kinds of bloviating visions of the of the future of, of their countries. Maybe, you know, we might be seeing a backlash against that, particularly in the kind of economic circumstances which Dennis is describing, which is going to hit all of us both on both sides of the Irish Sea later this year. Yeah, I think there's a lot to be said for for not having that automatic knee-jerk reaction uh, of resign. And I think to a certain degree, uh, the, the more politicians do that and the more they're known to do that, they can really run the risk of losing their the credibility. Um, because if you consistently call for someone to resign or you know, say something is the most scandalous thing you've ever heard. The more you say it, the less convincing it is as time goes on. And I think that goes to kind of the heart of this Cummings issue. It's it's a credibility thing. And I think from the outside looking in to a lot of people, it's quite incredible that Boris Johnson would um, almost be happy for the for his party and for his own, uh, in terms of his own reputation, to take that hit for the sake of essentially a special advisor. And I think in politics, the rule generally is special advisors should... Uh, not be uh, should not be seen or heard kind of in public. And yet we had the situation where you had Dominic Cummings coming into the, the Rose Garden, rocking up kind of a half an hour late, like diva style. And, you know, that just, the optics of that in itself uh, is incredible. And, 
you know, I suppose really long term, the issue would be that it goes back to this idea of one rule for politicians and one rule for the public. And while that's kind of a a thought process that's been around for, for quite some time, the real ramifications are if the public decide to abandon the medical advice and the government advice in relation to, to COVID-19, the tangible impact of that is 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 a threat to people's lives and a, a potential loss of lives. So the, the, the long-term consequences of the, coming, of the coming saga, I think, are potentially bigger than just a political um, row. And, you know, I think even when you're looking at the news from over here and you're seeing the Daily Mail coming out and and lambasting um, Cummings, it's incredible when you see their poll showing that 55% of those polled who are Conservative voters want Cummings to resign. It's not something that maybe you would have expected. So uh, I, I don't know, my own personal opinion is the longer this goes on and the longer that Boris Johnson clings to Dominic Cummings for whatever reason, maybe it's that Cummings has all the ideas and Boris Johnson doesn't, um, the more damaging it is for for the Conservative Party. And while this particular controversy may go away, there'll be many more with Dominic Cummings because this is his attitude and this is the reality at the at the heart of number 10. And let's be honest, that's why we love it. You know, it's kind of the thick of it in, in, in real life and that's why we we, uh, we particularly enjoy all that stuff. We'll leave it there. Listen, thanks very much to Jennifer, to Fiak and to Dennis for joining us for London. Thanks also to our producer, Suzanne Brennan and to JJ Vernon, our engineer. Uh, if you would like to support this podcast and more importantly and broadly, the journalism of the Irish Times as a whole, all you need to do is to go to irishtimes.com slash subscribe where you can sign up for the introductory price of one euro for the first month. Or uh, if you want to get in touch with us, uh, we'd be delighted to hear from you. Just mail us at at uh, politicspodcast at irishtimes.com. But until the next time, thanks very much indeed for listening.